And if you want to open up your Bibles to Philippians 3 or your phone apps, uh, most of the verses will be up yonder on the screen. How many recognize this this yo-yo up here? You do? All the old people, right? Like us. This guy uh, succeeded Stalin in the 50s and he led in the 60s and where? Back in the USSR, right? His name is uh, Khrushchev. Um, How many know that when he was a kid, he went to church, Christian church, and he won a lot of prizes because of his keen ability to memorize scripture. Yet anyone familiar with his life and the trajectory of his life know that Khrushchev did not believe that which he memorized and quoted based on his lifestyle and his um, tyranny. Do we really know Jesus or do we know about Jesus? We all kind of know about Jesus like Khrushchev did. Well, the Apostle Paul demonstrated in Philippians 3 that he was striving to know Jesus, not just know about him, not just do things for him, but to know him. And that's the theme of our message. Um, Apostle Paul was able to say, rejoice in the Lord, not in rejoice in your circumstances, because we can rejoice in a payday or play day, but can we, they're temporary things. But can we rejoice in the Lord who is permanent, who is always with us, who will always provide? Um, And so further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. We're going to spend more time with this theme in chapter 4 in two weeks, so we won't uh, unpack that right yet. But then then Paul launches into a warning. You um, You can rejoice and at the same time warn people of untruth. There were false teachers uh, who were attacking the new Christians in Philippi. So we read in verse 1, it is no trouble for me to write these things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Well, who were these dogs and the evildoers? They were the Judaizers, or the circumcision party. They were Jews who uh, were trying to convince the Gentile believers that they had to get circumcised in the flesh in order for them to be right before God and acceptable before God. They had to continue to follow the Old Testament law uh, despite what they did with, with Jesus. So in Acts 1 and 1 through 7, we read about the church, the birth of the church. And we're to see that Peter and the other disciples, they were primarily reaching out to the Jewish believers in Christ and this Jewish Messiah. God came for the Jews first and foremost, right? And so Peter especially was led, uh, leading this, um, this gospel endeavor to the Jews. And then we read in chapter 8 that because of persecution, uh, the Jewish Christians were spread outside of Jerusalem all around, and ministry happened in Samaria to their north, and Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were half-breeds, they were half-Jew, half-Gentile, and yet we read how uh, they continued to present the gospel to them in Samaria. 
And then in Acts 10 and 11, we see the progression of Peter having this vision of animals, unclean animals dropping from the, you know, from a sheet in the sky and, and I can't eat that. No, I can't eat those animals. They're unclean, Lord. And the Lord said, don't call anything unclean that I count as clean. And so it, it, he began to be revealed to him that Gentiles will be included in this movement too, this Jesus movement. Uh, and then Paul got a hold of uh, the apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, when he was on the road to Tarsus, and, and he was arrested by this bright light, and Jesus met Paul and converted him and opened his spiritual eyes and physical eyes again to be the Gentile, the leader to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. So we see this progression of Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. The Great Commission, um, it says something like, uh, what, you're to go to the whole world, present the gospel, right? To the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which are the Gentiles. And so we see this played out in the book of Acts. And, but, um, and then in Acts 15, we see a council in Jerusalem that met 14 years after the conversion of Saul. And we would, uh, and they asked this question, what do we do with these Gentiles? They're messy, they don't fit our paradigm. What do we do? Paul and Peter and these guys are preaching something that we don't agree with. Every nation and every generation has to deal with racial issues and racial tension. We see it in our day, in racial reconciliation, right? And we see riots and we see people speaking out and marches and all this. And we think, man, that's so messy and evil. Every generation does this because God wants to bring people together. Of, to represent what it will look like in heaven one day, in the kingdom of God, where we are all one from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so it is messy. It was 14 years later, and they were still debating this and trying to question, what do we do with these Gentiles? And so the Jerusalem council met, these leaders of the church. And um, even after the meeting, and after discerned position from the leaders, listening to the Spirit of God, there were still those religious leaders who disagreed and they rejected the decisions that God handed down to this council. They continued to oppose the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. These Jewish opposers, these Judaizers, they would follow Paul on his missionary journeys, this entourage of people, and they would try to uh, create a stir and oppose the gospel and, and try to convince these new converts of a false gospel. Jesus is good, but there's Jesus and the Jewish law. You need something more. And so Paul appropriately calls these Judaizers dogs, which is very ironic since the Jews for decades and centuries had called, they, they'd called the, the Gentiles dogs, the Gentile dogs, you're unclean. But Paul calls them dogs. Lightfoot says, the herds of dogs which prowl about eastern cities in that day, without a home, without an owner, feeding on the refuse and the filth of the streets, quarreling among themselves and attacking the passers-by, explain why Paul applied this image to the Jews. Because that's what they were doing. They were just creating chaos and fear, and they were bickering, and they were fighting. 
This Jesus and gospel teaches that it's okay to place your faith in Jesus. However, if you truly want to experience God, and if you want assurance of your salvation, if you want acceptance, if you want significance, then you have to have something more than Jesus. Many people doubt their salvation today in churches like this. I've talked to many because they feel like they haven't done enough or they haven't performed adequately enough should they stand before God one day. And so they fear they got to do more. That's Jesus and. But consider the thief on the cross. Uh, How does he fit into this Jesus and theology? This thief had no baptism. He had no communion, no prayer confirmation, no spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, no previous mission trips, no volunteerism, no church outfits. He never uttered a sinner's prayer in his life. Jesus didn't take away his pain. He didn't heal his body or smite the scoffers, yet it was this thief that walked into heaven the same day as Jesus. He had nothing more to offer than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. He wasn't influenced by spin from brilliant theologians or ego or arrogance. There were no shiny lights. There were no skinny jeans. There were no crafty words. There were no haze machines. There were no donuts. There was no coffee in the lobby. There was none of those bells and whistles. Just a naked, dying man on a cross, unable to fold his hands or bend his knees because his hands and feet were nailed to the cross. Therefore, he could not serve Jesus, run errands for the Lord, and yet Christ offered him this gift of life based on grace, and he took it. Acts 4.12, Peter preached, Salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus. God has given us no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. On the other hand, there are a group of people who do plenty of good things, thinking that they could perform their way into heaven. There are those um, who attend church. They volunteer for a lot of nonprofits. They rake leaves for their widow neighbor. They participate in religious activities, but they do not possess eternal life. I know this because this describes many of my friends who were raised in churches in my hometown. I went to school with them, and... uh, They never professed a faith in Jesus, but they're good people, and they did good things, and they went to church, and they never possessed eternal life. Some of them, fortunately, have since then, and they now look back, even some who are pastors, they look back and say, man, I was raised in the church, but I had no relationship with Jesus. I just knew about him in my head. And so, Paul encouraged the Philippian church. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. He was encouraging them. We are the true circumcision because we're circumcised in the heart. We are changed in the heart. It's not just in the external flesh. And it's evidenced by our faithful service and our praise of Jesus, which doesn't save us, but it's the evidence that we are saved. Paul understood these Judaizers, though, who were boldly proclaiming a Jesus and gospel because in his former life, he could have been their leader. 
He said in verse four, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, the strict law. He was from the tribe of Israel, the tribe of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was from the purity of the tribe of Benjamin, who, uh, who welcomed the first king of Israel, King Saul, and, and who landed in Jerusalem along with Judah, those two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and, and Judah. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul did not embrace the pagan culture, the Greek culture. No, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, a separated one, with only 6,000 of their who belonged in this elite sect at any time. He was a zealous, a persecutor of those who disagreed with him, all in the name of Jehovah God. And we're going to attack those bad people, those evil people. He was righteous and faultless by the law's, law's standards. Paul had achieved the highest standards, which would be comparable to an earned degree, ninth or tenth black belt in Taekwondo, which you'd spend a lifetime pursuing. I think the highest in this town right now is seventh or eighth degree black belt. Seventh, I believe. Paul was way more qualified than any of his opponents who based their, uh, based on external credentials. Verse seven, but, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul came to this awareness that all of his credentials, his strengths, his gifts, his pedigree, his accomplishments, they amounted to nothing they're garbage. The word is animal dung. If relied upon to measure his own self-worth or his own standing before God, they were nothing. I think of the religious young ruler who was religious in every way and he had accomplished all that he could and he strived and he tried to be the best person he could be and yet he found himself lacking peace and joy and purpose, and assurance. And so one day, he came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know the story, we won't unpack it right now. But essentially, Jesus threw it back at him and said, well, nobody's good. You say, what good thing can I do? It's a focus on what I can do for God to earn my way into right standing with God. That's what religion is. And Jesus said, you can't. I was raised in a good Christian home. My early faith consisted of trying to be good. I didn't swear. I didn't drink. I didn't party. I didn't take advantage of girls. I didn't do drugs. I didn't slander others. I tried to be nice. I didn't get in fights. It made me kind of a lonely high schooler at times. These are all worthy traits. But after all, I'm doing it for God. Furthermore, I was raised 
with a good pedigree. My family demonstrated right behavior, right morality, right church attendance, right political views, right everything. And I was proud of my upbringing and felt that all these things made me just a little bit more righteous than my friends and more acceptable to God as well. I lived under a Jesus and gospel. My question to each one of us is how do we define our and? What is the and in our life that offers us purpose and fulfillment and assurance and acceptance? It could be our gifts or our abilities. Could it be our personality, our charisma, our financial prosperity, our success in work, our activities, our good deeds? Maybe we, we are grateful for our good health and that's what gives us fulfillment and purpose or a reputation or confidence or maybe our freedom. You know, we want to be free or our politics or our relationships or maybe our morality. All these things can be ands if we put them before God. They're, they're not all bad things to pursue, but if they come before God, then they become idols, right? And it becomes a Jesus and for my fulfillment and my security. Paul said, I consider them all garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Which reminded me of this age-old illustration that you no doubt have heard. Some dude died and he found himself at the gates of heaven and there was St. Peter waiting for him. And Peter met him and said, so here's how it works. You need a thousand points to get to heaven. You need a list of all the good things you've done and I will assign a certain number according to the value of your good deed depending on how good it is. When you reach a thousand points, then you can come into heaven. Okay, the man said, well... I was married to the same woman for 50 years and I never cheated on her, not even in my heart. And Peter said, that's wonderful. Three points. Three points, wow. Well, I attended church all my life and I supported its ministry with my tithes and my sacrificial offerings, my talents. Terrific, Peter said. That's certainly worth one point. Only one point, the man began to sweat. How about this? I started a soup kitchen in my city and I worked for a shelter for homeless veterans. Peter responded, fantastic. That's worth two more points. You're up to six points. You only need 994 more points. Flabbergasted, the man cried out, at this rate, the only way I'll get into heaven is by the grace of God. He said, bingo. Congratulations, come on in. The grace of God is all the points you need. It's through the grace of Jesus, his righteousness. And that's what Paul recognized here. It's not by the law, not by me earning points for God, from God, but it's by, only by the grace of God. A woman who was nearing her death met the chaplain who came in to see her, and she said, I'm afraid I'm not done enough to be saved. What do you think? And the chaplain responded, I'm absolutely sure you haven't done enough to be saved, but neither have I. No one can. And thankfully, it doesn't depend on us. That's not what saves us. But believing in Jesus and trusting in God and his grace, 
It's the only thing that counts toward righteousness. And it's the only thing that gives us assurance and makes us acceptable before God. But our relationship with Christ, as we get to know him, it doesn't stop at our conversion. That's called justification, you know? We're justified and made right with God the moment we receive him for all eternity. We have eternal life. But Paul spent a lifetime cultivating that relationship. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. And one day we'll reach glorification. We've got justification, sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus in this life. And then one day we'll be truly sanctified and be glorified. And that's why Paul says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining the resurrection of the dead. Wait, Paul, you know Christ already. You're on a mission trip. What are you talking about? Paul says, I want to continue to deepen my relationship with with Jesus. Pastor David Owens observes that Paul's relationship with Jesus developed in a few specific ways here. And we'll end with these thoughts. First, a personal experience with Jesus. He says, I want to know Christ. Receiving Christ is the initial step, but it's the only the first step in a marathon, in a process throughout life, lifelong process. To know here, I want to know Christ, is not a mental knowledge. It's a, it's a, um, it's a dependence, but even more so, it's a term of intimacy. When it talks about Adam knew Eve in the book of Genesis, it talked about intimacy in the most physical sense. So an intimate term, to know Christ, um, is to know him in a very deep, intimate way. And David Guzak writes, we can say that we know someone because we recognize them in some specific way, their qualities, outward qualities. We can say we know someone because we're acquainted of what they do, like my baker bakes me bread and I know him. We can say that we know someone because we actually converse with them and we're on speaking terms with them. We can say that we know someone because we spend time in their house with their family. We can say that we know someone because we're committed to him or her for life, like in a marriage relationship or a commitment like this, sharing every circumstance in life. Yet beyond all this, knowing Christ is all of these things, but even way more, goes way beyond. Paul says, I want to know Christ in that way. Paul says, a powerful experience with Jesus as well. Yes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That power is available to us. It's accessible to us as children of God. And I gotta confess, what does that look like to know the resurrection power of Jesus? Does it look like going to church and like I've been to church and whoop-de-doo? Uh, As I thought about it, I thought about early in my Christian life when I began to chalk things up to coincidences. And when these coincidences continued to take place in my life, then I began to see the hand of God in these coincidences in answer to my prayer. Um, For example, I remember a couple times when I got a timely phone call or I made one and it ended up being a God appointment. I said, oh, wow, thank you, God. Wow, that was so encouraging. Or an unexpected encounter with someone that the Lord had laid on my heart and mind, and boom, I run into them. 
uh, or a sudden thought as I was preparing to encourage, encourage someone and something comes to my mind, where'd that come from? Or an impartation of a peace or a strength that overtakes my anxiety and fear and weakness. And I felt that this morning, especially in the first service, as I was just committing this to the Lord, I felt just this wave of peace come over me. And that is the resurrection power that Paul's speaking of. It doesn't have to be like a supernatural magician, you know, like, ooh, did you see that? Spectacular. It can be, but it's in everyday experiences like that. Um, Paul says, he goes on, he says, I want to know participation in his sufferings. Now that's something we pray about a lot, don't we? I got a prayer request. I've never seen that on the bottom of your prayer card. Pray that I participate in the sufferings because we, don't, we avoid it. We don't want it. None of us do. Yet many would assume that suffering is because of God's judgment somehow or because we're not seeking God enough. You know, we're going to suffer um, rather than a privilege of knowing Jesus. I, I kind of like this quote, and it's speaking to me a lot this past week or two. Sometimes the only way God can show us that he's in control is to allow us, I put, is it up there? Is that a quote? No. Ah, bummer. Anyway, sometimes the only way God can show us he's in control is to allow us to be placed in situations that we cannot control. Whoa. And what's this quote say? Sometimes God lets you to be in, oh, it says the same thing. All right. I, I couldn't read it sideways, so. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I, could, I thought here I can illustrate it by talking about missionaries in Zimbabwe and, you know, the, they're sitting in prison. And we know those stories being martyred for Christ and suffering. But what does it look like in our lives? Um, Nina Herman was serving as a chaplain of a children's hospital. And she was, her job was to minister to children who were suffering in their families. And one cold night she was sitting home after long week and uh, she was reading cuddled up by the fire and she was loving life and then she got this call from the mother of a former patient who had been readmitted in the hospital and the mother desperately needed Nina to go pay her child a visit in the hospital and so Nina did not want to go she was comfortable she was didn't want to leave into the wintry cold night but she did anyway and when she arrived in the hospital after walking through the cold, getting dressed again, and she discovered that the child was doing okay. It was a false alarm by a fearful mother. And Nina stayed for a while, ministered to the child, and indeed she was blessed by that experience, and, and the child was blessed as well. And when Nina returned home that night, she wrote this in her journal. She said, I read about God and Jesus participating in, in the human experience, his suffering, his knowing rejection, aloneness, pain, and fear. But it had never been something I understood until now. Do what you don't want to do. Go where you don't want to go. Plod through the snow. Wrestle with the cold and the wind. And when you least expect it, you may glint, 
you may glimpse through an open door a revelation of Christ. So that's not anything earth-shattering. It's not like revolutionary, but it's what the Bible calls dying to self, which leads to the final purpose, a purposeful experience Paul had when he said, becoming like him in his death and somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. What he meant here by attaining the resurrection of the dead is like, somehow I hope that I'll be resurrected. He's saying, no, my mind is blown that I'm offered this gift and somehow God has given me this gift and I can't even fathom the reality of it, but I want to experience that someday. But this was one of Paul's favorite themes when he wrote, becoming like him in his death. Paul wrote in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. He wrote in Colossians, you you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ. In Romans, if we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4 We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And then Paul, of course, learned this from his Savior, Jesus, who said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Again, it's death to self. Someone said, it's great difficulty to die to oneself. How much easier to hear and obey God's call to leave all for a remote tribe in Africa than to let the car to my left have the right of way. We get to die to ourselves multiple times a day when we give other people preference over us. Jesus didn't say, stand up for your rights, so much as he said, die to your rights. Put the others before you for the sake of Christ. He didn't say attack the enemies who are in in darkness out there, who are living for the world in anti-Christian ways. He said, go love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He said to us, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you show my mercy, my grace, my love toward others with whom you disagree, vehemently disagree. You, the onus is on us as children of God. It's not on them It's on us to be the initiators. And so that's what it means to die to oneself. Glenn McDonald said, deciding to follow Jesus means deciding to die. I give up my life on my terms 24 hours at a time and learn what it means to live life on God's terms. And when we lay down our rights voluntarily like this so that others may be drawn to Jesus in us, that is is purposeful living. It is so otherworldly and upside down from what this world offers. So, in conclusion, this is how Paul continued to grow in his relationship with Jesus in ways that were personal and powerful and painful and purposeful. My question is, how well do you know Jesus? And is there evidence of that in your life? And are you willing to deepen your relationship with him in these ways that are personal and powerful and sometimes painful, but they're always purposeful? And so, Lord, we 
this is a difficult message for me to hear, Lord, because I fall so far short of this on a regular basis. And, and yet at the same time, it's freeing because I know that my righteousness and my acceptance by you and my love and forgiveness does not depend on, on my performance. It depends on your grace and me just admitting my need for you. And even my sanctification doesn't depend on my performance. It's just my willingness to walk in step with you as well. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and we ask you to meet us in our weaknesses um, and, and meet us where we fail you and let us know that we are forevermore in your family as your child and help us to demonstrate that same grace to others, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.